0: My guest on today's episode is a returning guest. He is uh, Neil Shenvey. Neil has an A.B. in chemistry from Princeton and a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. He is the author of Why Believed? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity and is widely recognized for his writing on critical theory, which can be found in journals like Econ and the Journal of Christian Legal Thought. He is married and has four children. Neil, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Well, glad to have you back on. I've been looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to the release of this new book, uh, which was co-authored with Pat Sawyer. So we will give Pat a shout out. Uh, but as we get started, just tell me, how did you get into studying critical theory? What's the story behind that?
1: Interesting story. So I began getting interested in the subject about six years ago, five or six or seven years ago, uh, around the time I finished up the first draft of my first book, I believe, and I was looking around for some other project to, uh, to tackle. And that was around the time that Black Lives Matter really took off as an organization. And I began to see a shift in our culture and how the culture and the church was talking about issues like race, class, and gender. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what was wrong with it. Something seemed off, but I couldn't figure out what. Well, providentially, around that time, I met Pat. So my co-author, Pat Sawyer, who was getting his PhD in education and cultural studies at UNC Greensboro. And he came over to my house one day because we both shared an interest in apologetics. We had a mutual friend who went to our church. And so we hung out for like six hours. He came over at like seven o'clock at night and he left at like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or something. But during that conversation, I found out that he was doing research in the critical tradition, that his PhD dissertation would end up being in the field of critical pedagogy, When he explained his research to me, I suddenly thought, this is what I'm seeing. This sort of framework is what is erupting in the culture and even within evangelicalism. So starting with that relationship, I began reading extensively on critical theory and relying on Pat to sort of guide my reading and help me understand things that were going on. So we've been collaborating for more or less five or six years now, writing together, speaking, and now finally publishing this book on critical theory, and social justice ideology.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I've been reading your blog for several years. Um, I was seeing a lot of the same trends that, I, that you were talking about earlier and uh, confused, concerned by them. I could recognize that there were uh, there was some uh, different worldviews that were been behind these trends that I, that I knew I disagreed with, but I didn't know exactly what it was or you know, couldn't articulate why. Uh, I had grounds for disagreement until I found your blog, and it really, really helped me. Can you just give some more specific examples of uh, the kind of trends that you had been seeing um, in evangelicalism and in the culture that then uh, led you to seeing critical theory as being the driving force behind it? Mm -hmm.
1: So actually, our first chapter is illustrative because we have just, I don't know, 20 or 30 examples of quote-unquote wokeness both in the culture and in the evangelical church. So one example from the culture very prominent would be in 2020, the Smithsonian Institute published an infographic on aspects and assumptions of whiteness in white culture. They had a list of all these different elements of whiteness. And they included things like uh, the scientific method, objective or rational linear thinking is an element of whiteness, and white culture uh, ideas like hard work is the key to success is an element of whiteness, and you'd expect to see things like that in a neo-Nazi manifesto, but not from the Smithsonian Institutes. And actually, it was to, to top it all off, that was in their museum of African American history and culture. This purportedly anti-racist organization promoting yeah. this crazy stuff, and they took the took the infographic down after an outcry. But you are like, "What in the world is that? Who who thinks that hard work to get success is a white thing? That's really super. Actually, that's kind of racist." Yeah. <laughs> so that's an example from the yeah. culture. Another one would be uh, Blues Clues in 2021 during Pride Month. The television program Blues Clues, which is targeted at preschoolers, it's helping them learn like simple words and numbers and shapes and it's it's aimed at kids that are three through six but they had a video a cartoon video featuring a drag queen singing a song to the tune of the ansco marching and it had a whole parade like a pride parade and the lyrics talked about asexual bisexual and pansexual grown-ups one of the cartoon characters was a beaver with double mastectomy scars. So it was a female beaver that had cut off the beaver's breasts. Wow. That was in the video. And this is, again, this is for four-year-olds. And you're like, yeah. where? how did we get here? So that would be in the culture. And then in the church, so we also saw things happening in the church. So one of the prime examples would be uh, Dr. Christina Cleveland. So she I wrote a book called Disunity in Christ in 2013. There's a very sort of moderate... Uh, evangelical Christian take on, um, on uniting across lines that divide us, like politics or race or education. So it's, it's a pretty normal. It's filled with scripture. It's a pretty nondescript book, uh, not not objectionable, really. Um, and in 2016, she wrote a column for Christianity Today, so a very prominent evangelical figure. She spoke at crew conferences. She spoke at inter conferences. So again, major evangelical figure. That was 2016, 2017, well in 2022 she published a book called God is a Black Woman mm-hmm. that where she just exp- is clear that she's totally renounced the Christian faith and that she no longer worships a being that she calls white male god all in one one word lower lower letters and that she now worships the sacred black feminine and the book is structured around her pilgrimage to France where she goes to 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 worship and pay homage to and to caress these black Madonna statues that represent mm. to her, she christens them like the Lady of the, Our Lady of the Side-Eye and Our Lady of All Bling and Few Churches Are Hot Mess and just give these names to these statues that she's worshipping now. So that that's an extreme example. But there are many yeah. other uh, evangelical figures who, who 10 years ago, even five years ago, were conservative evangelicals and were platformed by major evangelical organizations that have really just either completely apostatized or have embraced essentially progressive Christianity. So, And then and, and we have examples in the book, but it's not really, a the book's not about people. It's not about these individuals that are, you know, oh, these are the bad apples. No, we're, our point is that there are these ideas in the culture that are at the root of these crazy outbursts we're seeing. And to really then to, uh, to counter that movement, we have to counter the ideas.
0: Yeah, and so these ideas, like you said, are in our mainstream culture now everything from I mean they're in Blue's Clues as you pointed out which I didn't know that female beavers had breasts to be removed but (laughs) they're mammals (laughs) right
1: so they gotta have they gotta have (laughs) mammary glands
0: (laughs) so um uh, yeah so they're in everything from Blue's Clues to mainstream news politics it's in the mainstream now and uh in anything that people today would identify as woke right but uh, what you discovered and what you write about in this book is that these ideas, they didn't start in the mainstream culture, but they had their start somewhere else, and then they worked their way into our mainstream culture through a uh, a, a host of studies that are kind of often lumped together as critical theory. And one of the first things that you guys address in the book is that it's uh, the first challenge is really just naming. Uh, what these i uh, n- giving a name to these ideas uh so that they can be critiqued and what often ends up happening and and i've read your uh, your twitter threads and blog posts where you're, you go back and forth in these kind of debates what often ends up happening is you just get into this argument over semantics and you trying to address some ideas and people just uh dismissing your uh, uh, objections and critiques because you're not calling it the right name and so that's the first thing you guys approach in this book is just what what do we call this like what do we name it uh, because there's a whole host of studies and personalities and ideas that go into what people typically call critical theory and wokeness. So how do you guys approach that problem uh, so that you can critique these ideas?
1: We in our book we talk about this problem so you know five years ago people were talking about cultural Marxism. Or, or Jordan Peterson talked about postmodern neo-Marxism, or people talk about today critical race theory or intersectionality. They have all these terms. The problem is that, as you said, when you get in a conversation with, say, a progressive about, well, what's wrong with the culture or the ideas that are at fault, whatever you call this ideology, they'll say it's the wrong label. You can't, oh, don't call it cultural Marxism. That's a neo-Nazi conspiracy theory, even though it's, it actually goes back decades to academia. But, you know, but they'll say, well, you can't use that term. Well, can I call it wokeness? Well, no, that's actually an African-American vernacular term, and you're appropriating their culture, and it's racist. You can't use that term. Can I call it critical race theory? Well, that's just a law, legal theory that's taught only in graduate schools. Well, can I call it intersectionality? Well, that's just a legal concept. So whatever you say, whatever you call it, they'll tell you it's the wrong term. It's really just a semantic shell game. They, they, they want to avoid discussing the ideas, and so they have to keep you keep – you, Using different labels, and they can avoid ever talking about the ideas. So, to avoid that strategy, we have coined a newish term that we call contemporary critical theory. So, there's no question these ideas are rooted in something called critical theory or the critical tradition that goes back to Karl Marx but has evolved tremendously in the last 150 years. So, it goes back to Marx through the Frankfurt School in the 1920s and 30s. People like Antonio Gramsci, Max Horkheimer, uh, then 1960s, the New Left in the UK. Uh, really Crenshaw, and critical race theory. Derek Bell in the 18 1980s and 1990s, and and then in modern uh, modern queer theory is a critical social theory. So the point is there are all of these different streams of thought in this critical tradition, and that's or these ideas are coming from that stream of philosophy. But then uh, it's the ideas that are affecting our contemporary culture most dramatically. So we've chosen to call this contemporary critical theory if people insist on calling it something else they can but we want to say let's focus on the ideas these ideas are false they are unbiblical and they are dangerous and so we want to pick those ideas out no matter what you call them and see these ideas are false and they must be rejected
0: yeah and after you name it then there's the recognition that well this is a humongous area of uh, writings and and, and people and ideas that you're diving into everything from as you mentioned before, uh, queer theory to uh, critical pedagogy to to, uh, critical race theory to all these different other ones. And so there's there's a lot going on here. But what you guys do in the book to try to approach it in a manageable way is you try to distill it down to, uh, if I remember right, it was four kind of core similar ideas uh, that you can then go from there uh, to to engage with it and critique it. What are those four common ideas that you see across the board among these contemporary critical theories?
1: All right, so the four ideas are, number one, the social binary, number two, a hegemonic power, number three, lived experience, and number four, social justice. So let me go through each of those quickly. The social binary is the idea that society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race class gender sexuality physical ability nationality colonial status and a host of other factors so in every category you have an oppressor group like whites or men or heterosexuals or christians or physically able-bodied people or the young Uh, so that's the oppressor group and then in contrast, you have oppressed groups. P- people of color are oppressed. Women are oppressed. LGBTQ people are oppressed. Disabled people are oppressed. Uh, fat people are oppressed. So you have the social barrier of oppressor versus oppressed. Now, when you say that, occasionally people will ask, "That doesn't make any sense. Well, How can that be the case? Like, uh, oppression means you know cruel treatment, tyranny, uh, uh, control, abuse of power. That you know, I, I, that's what in the dictionary oppression means." So how can you say that we live in the, uh, you know, the intersection of all these systems of oppression? Where I don't see them. Like, sure, there's injustice out there. I agree with that. But I don't walk around. I mean, I'm a woman or I'm, I'm black. I don't walk around feeling like I'm constantly being oppressed and treated cruelly. So how can you say that's the case? Well, the second idea is called hegemonic power. So critical theorists have redefined the word oppression To include not just cruel treatment or tyranny, but also to to include the ways in which the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or Christians or the able-bodied, the ruling class has imposed their values on culture in a way that justifies their own power and privilege. And these norms and values that they've imposed on culture are so common and they so suffuse our culture that they are taken for granted as natural as normal, as common sense, even as God-ordained. And yet, all of these values and norms, they marginalize certain groups, and that constitutes oppression. So whenever you have some system of ideas, some ideology that's, that's taken, taken from the ruling class that justifies their own power at the expense of other people, well, that's oppression. So, for example, white supremacy is this constellation of values and norms That supposedly marginalizes black people and therefore and people of color and therefore oppresses them. The patriarchy is a system of values and norms that oppresses women. Uh, Heterosexism is a system of values and norms that exalts heterosexuality and oppresses homosexual people and LGBTQ people. The the gender binary is an idea that oppresses uh, transgender people. So. That's how they that's how they think about power, and hegemonic power refers to the ability of the ruling class to impose their values on culture, and that is what oppression has been redefined to include. Well, the question, then the question is, well, how do you escape those values and norms of the ruling class? And that's the third idea is lived experience. The way that we can escape from the, this, these blinders that have been imposed on us by culture is through the lived experience of oppression. Now, of course, if you're in a dominant group, if you're part of that oppressor group, if you're white or male or heterosexual or Christian, well, you're blind to your privilege. So you don't have the experience of racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism to draw upon, and therefore you're kind of in the dark. But in contrast, people that are oppressed can, can through their lived experience of oppression, can realize that they're being oppressed and can wake up. They can get woke. They can achieve what's called a liberatory or critical consciousness that then allows them to articulate how oppression operates today. So because of that, if you are a dominant group member, so if you're a white white or middle class or you're male or you're heterosexual or you're a Christian, well, you should defer to their Authority that they possess by virtue of their lived experience, because they they can see clearly, whereas you're still blinded. Then finally, the end goal and telos, the purpose of critical theory today, and uh, is and always has been social justice, which they would define as the elimination of the social binary. So they want to tear down the systems and structures that perpetuate these unjust uh, ideologies and these unjust hegemonic discourses that marginalize some people. They want to tear those down. That we can achieve a state of diversity, equity, and inclusion, so that there's no more oppressive narratives, there's no more othering, there's no more dominant and oppressed groups, uh, that all of us share power. So that's the, the end, that's the right side of history. You, you're working towards this state of liberation where people share power. So those are the four big ideas. And if you think this is a very rough approximation, if you think about those four ideas, if you apply those four ideas to, say, race, you get critical race theory. If you apply those four ideas to gender and sexuality, you get queer theory. If you apply those four ideas, say to teaching, you get critical pedagogy. If you apply those four ideas to colonial status, colonial and imperial status in, in nations, you get postcolonial theory. And that's a rough approximation. These these mm-hmm. subdisciplines have obviously different origins and different histories and different ideas. But broadly speaking, you can understand all of these subdisciplines in terms of those four core ideas
0: yeah well if you guys are listening and you're you're Brain is hurting to uh keep up with all of that then just know you're not alone it is it, it's such a i think for a lot of us uh, maybe this is increasingly not true but for a lot of us you know this way of thinking is so alien to the way that uh many of us were raised to think uh values to hold assumptions to to hold uh, if you know if i dare say it it really does seem like an entirely different world view and i know that a lot of um a lot of people on the other side of this debate have pushed back against using that term with critical theory. Um, I guess before we move any further, what's your opinion there? Can we use the term worldview uh, whenever we are discussing contemporary critical theory?
1: Yeah, I think we can. I think it's very fair. Um, my co-author, Pat, likes to say that you know, critical theory in its most robust form, it makes claims about epistemology. That is, how do we know the truth through lived experience? It makes claims about uh, ontology. What does it mean to be human in the world of the nature of our human experience? It makes claims about um, uh, phenomenology, meaning what is our day-to-day experience of life and how is it shaped by social factors? It's making these really big claims. Or just take a a look at how all of those categories encompass all of life. You know, race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, uh, you know, national stat. That's pretty much all of our social spheres are fit into that oppressor-oppressed grid. They're not trying to narrowly understand just one feature of social reality. They're, they're trying to understand all of it. They're trying to understand how do you get at the truth about injustice. How, uh, they're trying to get at things like what is just? What is unjust? What is oppression? These are big questions. And that that's because of that, contemporary critical theory functions as a worldview. Another point that uh, Pat likes to make is that Say critical race theory, uh, and we'll get into this probably later, but um, in its in its most robust sense, it, it wants to colonize more and more of your thinking. If you say, well, I'm just going to take critical race theory and I'm going to apply mm. it only to, say, race, I'm going to use it as a narrow analytic tool. Well, the mm-hmm. funny thing is that if you read the critical race theorists themselves, one of the defining elements of critical race theory since its inception in 1993, going back way 30 years ago, they said that one of the defining elements is that critical race theory treats racism sexism and heterosexism as different forms of oppression and that they're all interrelated to, to, to to undermine one like racism is to be against all of those things and that we will need i quote massive social transformation to undermine all of these oppressions at the same time Mm-hmm. That's a very early critical research theory document called Words That Wound, co-authored by the, the movement's co-founders, including Kimberly Crenshaw. and So they will tell you, they're not aiming to just have this really tiny little slice of your, your mental landscape being occupied. By, they want to expand that and say, no, th- you have to think of all of these issues, race, class, gender, sexuality, all of them in terms of, say, the social binary, all of them in terms of lived experience, all of them in terms of uh, social justice. So I, I do think, and because it answers those big quick questions like, "Who am I? How do I know the truth? What is my purpose in life? What should I be doing with my time? what What is the end goal for humanity? It's absolutely functioning as a worldview, and it will there always will be a battle then between, say, contemporary critical theory and some other worldview you might want to hold, like Christianity. They're gonna fight for dominance in your in your thinking in your emotional investment, in your how you spend your resources, your time, uh, where your heart is, really. So uh, we argue, you know, in the book, you can't serve two masters. You're going to have to choose what you value most and what's going to be your, your regnant paradigm in thinking about social issues.
0: Yeah, wow. So would that explain why, if critical theory or contemporary critical theory is a worldview, would that perhaps help explain why we can witness so many people within evangelicalism who start out as— Biblical, orthodox, you know, normal, middle of the road, evangelical, uh, be- who begin to start, um, you know, absorbing some of these ideas, particularly like on on race relations matters, um, then slowly descending into, uh, should we say, compromising on a lot of other biblical truths, particularly on homosexuality, gender, and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can see it in real time. If you actually, there's a we quote her, but. Christina Cleveland gave a lecture in 2019 about missions as the heroicization of whiteness to the Leslie Newbigin Summers Institute in the UK, I think. But in that talk, she says explicitly that her thinking about race has been framed by critical race theory, which in her words teaches that we all live within this oppressive ladder with straight white males at the top and at the very bottom, we have Black trans women, and so, so it's just so clear that it's, it's a. And that was 2019. Even that was before she wrote her book. That was when she was. I think at the time she might have still been professing that she would, to be a Christian, but you can see how that way of thinking sort of percolated through not just her thinking about race, but gender, and then sexuality, and then really even religion. How do you think about God's role in the universe? Is he just, you know, is he, is he, isn't he imposing his values on you? Isn't he telling you how to live? Isn't he mm. claiming that his values and norms are good and natural and o- ordained by God because he's God, and he wants you to take them in and, and to live by? Well, what is that? Well, he's really actually imposing his value. He's, a, he's an oppressor. He has a hegemonic discourse. In fact, the Bible itself is increasingly viewed as this oppressive hegemonic discourse hmm. that is naturalized and seen as normal, but really we have to get underneath it and debunk it. That's part of the work of social justice. Anyway, but yes, the, the short answer is yes, that absolutely you can see this trajectory in so many figures within evangelicalism, and also outside, and it really is reflecting the fact that critical theory is functioning as a worldview.
0: Yeah, I think another way that, that we can see that working its way out, uh, working itself out in a really odd way... Is in the way that different uh, expressions of wokeness we'll just put it that way um, kind of gather together these different subgroups of people that really don't hold that many common interests with one another and sometimes even have contradictory interests with one another maybe you can help us to explain this but you know recently we've seen uh, this group called Queers for Palestine yep. that are supporting um, you know the palestinian side of the conflict going on over there in gaza right now and if you you know understand the views on homosexuality within that part of the world it seems to be a very uh self-defeating group to be in queers for palestine uh nevertheless i think if you understand how it's operating within a certain worldview then within that worldview it makes sense Can can you help us to make sense of all that Sure. So Kimberly
1: Crenshaw is a critical race theorist and really one of, I'd argue, the most important critical race theorists alive today. You could argue Derrick Bell was more foundational. He he was kind of the godfather of critical race theory. But Crenshaw, more than any other figure, is responsible for its prominence today. And really, her concept of intersectionality, which she introduced that term in two papers in 1989 and 1991. So she introduced the concept of intersectionality as a way to argue that uh, our identities are not simple they're complex. We cannot be reduced to a single axis like race alone or gender alone, and that our experience of, say, race and gender is simultaneous. So the example that she gave was of, say, a black woman. A black woman can be discriminated against not merely because she's black or not merely because she's a woman, but because she's a black woman. She gave an example of a car company, a lawsuit that was filed on behalf of black women. I think it was GM. And uh, these black women argued they were discriminated against because they were black women. And the car- the defense was, well, we have lots of black people in our company and we have lots of women in our company. So your case is faulty. And Crenshaw argued, well, no, that's not the case because you could have lots of black men and lots of white women, but you don't want to have black women in particular. And that's a fair argument, right? Maybe someone really just doesn't like black women. And, and so you can be discriminated against not for only your race or only your gender, but for the combination of your races. So that, so that narrow observation is, I think, it's valid. Of course you can be discriminated against for these intersection of factors. But what she did, though, was more, broader than just that sort of narrow version of intersectionality. She wanted to see us to see the world in terms of these intersecting systems of oppression, so in that sense, black women were doubly oppressed. They were in this doubly oppressed category, and their very uh, their identities were being shaped not merely by being being black, plus being a woman. They had this special. Discrimination and oppression they faced as black women. Now, what does that do? It means that you, first of all, you see solidarity with lots of different groups because you all are experiencing different oppressions. And so there is this immediate recognition that, say, yes, uh, I'm experiencing oppression because of race and you because of gender, but we both experience oppression. On the other hand, it tends to fracture alliances because a black woman and a white woman. Are differently socially situated, so she would argue, say that white, that feminism as a whole, the movement was dominated by the interests of the white middle class women, and not the interests of, say, minority women or poor women. And so there's a lot of debate within intersectional circles as to uh, how do you how do you foster solidarity without fracturing over these different identities. Anyway, the bottom line is that today, though, this intersectional lens has really taken over academia. And what happens today is, through this intersectional framework, you're uniting all these various subdisciplines. So, for example, today, if you pick up a textbook on critical race theory, there'll be an entire chapter on gender and an entire chapter on LGBTQ issues. If you pick up a textbook on queer theory, you'll have an entire chapter on race or disability. Pick up a, a textbook on uh, fat theory. That's actually what it's called. You'll find chapters on race and gender and sexuality. So intersectionality guarantees that all of these oppressions are treated simultaneously. Um, and, and so that's why, for example, you see groups like or signs like "Queers for Palestine or another sign says reproductive justice is Palestinian justice. Climate justice is Palestinian justice. You're like, what? what? How do they have anything to do with each other? In fact, you said, you know, LGBTQ community is not actually being welcomed by, say, the average Arab person, right, who's pro-Palestine. But that's – so what's going on? The answer is they're seeing everything through this intersectional framework, which would see them all as oppressed groups that need to unite to work for their, their, uh, their freedom and liberation as oppressed groups.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot to be done there in just uh, diagnosing and, and, and trying to understand what's uh, happening with contemporary critical theory. Whenever we move to critique, let's first start by identifying what's the wrong way to approach critiquing uh, contemporary critical theory. You guys talk about that in the book, some, uh, some wrong ways to go about doing it and how we should uh, properly uh, critique critique. Uh, contemporary critical theory. So let's start there. What would be the wrong ways to start critiquing this? So
1: there are a lot of mistakes that Christians and non-Christians can make. Uh, One is just to firebomb some term, like, oh, critical race theory, just firebomb it, get rid of it, that label's wrong, it's always bad, we're not going to use it anymore. And we point out that's just strategically a mistake, because what's going to happen, and already is happening, if you firebomb a term like critical race theory, people will just rename it. They'll just call it, well, we're not doing critical race theory anymore. We're doing anti-racism. Okay, well, I don't like that either. Well, no, we're not doing anti-racism. We're doing critical whiteness pedagogy. Well, I don't like critical. And it's like it goes on and on. They just change the labels, and the same poisonous ideas are repackaged under a new label. So you have to attack the ideas. You can't just attack some term. Uh, or they'll say, like, you don't understand that term, and it goes on and on. So you find, what are the ideas, though? That's number one. Uh, another, I think, uh, I see just generally speaking, Christians just haven't put in the work to understand the ideas. And this is very common. Uh, I, we have in the book several examples of people that the ways in which people misunderstand what the theories are saying, and because of that, they give what they think are these gotcha zinger answers that actually don't work at all. Here An example would be i've I've seen conservatives talk about intersectionality. And they talk about how intersectionality breaks people down into smaller and smaller groups. You got, you, know, you know, you're not just black, you're a black woman. You're not just a black woman, you're a black poor woman. You're not just a, a poor black woman, you're a black disabled woman who's poor. So you get these narrow and narrow categories. So the conservative zinger is, well, the smallest category is the individual. So let's just protect individual rights, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think that's a great point but it's not because intersectionality never sees people as individuals in fact they'll problematize individualism as whiteness <laughs> So they'll always see you even if you're the only you know poor black lesbian uh, Palestinian post only that only category the only one person is you in that category you're just a member of these multiple intersecting oppressed groups. you're still not, an individual hmm. so that's not mm-hmm. the way the theories work um and conversely if you're the only rich straight white norwegian billionaire who's physically who's an athlete you're the only person in the world like that you're just a member of multiple oppressor groups that's all you are you're not an individual so that's just the wrong way to attack so i think hmm. christians and non-christians we have to really do our homework to understand what people are saying, in order to challenge what they're saying, not not to make it okay, but to say you're going to take a wrong approach in critiquing it if you don't understand what they're actually saying. And then finally, I think in our book we really bring about bring out the fact that the reason that we're here as a culture, at least in part, is due to the history of uh, slavery and racism in our country. We have a whole chapter on the history of slavery black codes and Jim Crow and modern day discrimination and racism uh, and, and how it's still a thing in our society. And that, because people have been, uh, have seen racism because, and, and for a large part, they abhor it. If you tell them, well, we're going to give you the way to solve racism. We're going to give you the magic bullet to solve it. They are so desperate for that. that they Yeah, I'll totally, I'll buy into whatever you're selling when it happens to be critical race theory. <laughs> so if we want then to, to warn people about critical race theory, say, we have to not just show them that it's wrong, we have to show them a better approach to race. So in the book we also we talk about our horrific racial history. We also show them a better way to approach race biblically. What does it mean? How should we think about it? How can we work towards racial unity? What are some basic theological truths that we can affirm about? the unity of the human race, uh, about um, you know whether or not ancestral guilt's a biblical category. It's not. Uh, but things like that. that we want to you know, warn people about the dangers, but also give them a better, more biblical approach to thinking about these issues. So I think those are three things that we'd say are good ways to approach uh, critiquing critical theory.
0: Yeah. And so when we begin to do these uh, the the critiquing and critical theory, and doing these apologetics, are these apologetics that we're only doing towards the culture, or is this apologetics that we're also doing for the health of the church? In other words, is contemporary critical theory really a danger to the church? I know you gave an example of uh, Dr. Cleveland earlier, uh, but you know is that a a good example of uh, of a danger to to all of evangelicalism and to your Everyday average congregation, or is that really something that's just happening in a couple of uh, you know esoteric corners of Christian academia? Something that really is no danger to the average church or you know person in a local congregation.
1: I mean, I speaking personally, I think it's a hugely important issue for the church and the help of the church. I think that yes, uh, the cases where you see someone actually just abandoning Christianity and apostatizing, that's there's those are fewer cases. But we definitely just do see a more a bigger drift towards progressive theology in response to embracing and imbibing these ideas that are drawn from critical theory. So again, this, this progression is often pretty consistent. It starts with embracing, say, these ideas about race that are infused with critical race theory and its, its way of thinking. But then, because critical race theory will push for it, it will say, hey, you can't just think about race. Think about gender also. So you'll start thinking about why, in what ways are women oppressed by the patriarchy? Well, they've redefined the words oppression and patriarchy. So oppression now refers to any way in which the ruling class, meaning men, imposes their values on culture. Well, what about male eldership? About male leadership in the family, things like that—is isn't that? Oh, but that's God ordained. Oh, exactly. You'd say that because you're trying to preserve your male power and privilege. So now we've gone from saying let's approach race this way to saying let's approach things like gender and female role, male and female roles in the church and society, is approach that 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 lens. Maybe let's approach the Bible through a feminist lens, not just through this sort of patriarchal lens. Because because remember lived experience is very important. We have to give the voice to feminist scholars that have been denied it. And um, if I say, well, the Bible says such and well, that's your white male interpretation of the Bible. That's not the Bible itself. And so, then, and then of course you apply that same lens to sexuality. How have heterosexuals imposed their heteronormative values on the culture and on the church? You're interpreting that passage. In 1 Corinthians, through your heterosexist lens, through your white male experiences. But really, we ought to take a queer approach to scriptures. For example, we give examples in our chapters on queer theory, how some admittedly progressive Christians are now doing what they call queer theology, where they're applying the deconstructive methods of queer theory explicitly to... Historic Christian truths, things like about doctrines of sin and salvation, and of course gender and sexuality, but it really is an acid that will eat away the very foundations of the Christian faith.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, um, and and that's why I asked the question because I agree. Uh, <laughs> well, we have
1: a, we have a, yeah. a section at the end of the book, I think chapter thirteen, called "Ideas that will Best, that will devastate your church." Mm-hmm. We give a bunch of slogans. I think nine slogans, like here's one sin is oppression right and it, it, like oh yeah actually i had a friend a, a solid christian who said to me once sin is oppression and, the, and i was like wait what he's like yeah sin's oppression but wait a minute it's like what about like idolatry like worshiping a statue who are you oppressing when you do that and he's like oh i guess i was like well wait a minute He's like, I never thought of that. I was like, how could you have never thought of that? He's like, I, just, but to him, it's like, it just sounds so reasonable. Of course, yeah. you know, Christians are for social justice. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. Isn't it obvious? No, it's not obvious, guys. So we often begin by repeating these slogans without realizing what they even mean. And we get this vibe from the culture. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to say. But mm-hmm. if you think about it really deeply, you're like, it's not what the Bible says about, say, sin. Of course, oppression, defined biblically, is a sin, But it's one of many sins and not all sins involve horizontal oppression some sins just involve offending god so the bottom line is that yeah these ideas are pernicious and they often slip in because they go they fit the cultural zeitgeist but we have to resist that
0: yeah yeah i completely agree and it's something that just like you have witnessed online a lot you know you can see it uh with different uh different people of various levels of um, you know platform you can see a trajectory with them uh, and then I think many of us can ha- have witnessed it just in our individual lives and different uh, maybe Christian organizations that we've been mm-hmm. a part of I have a couple of good friends who have been uh, really involved with major Christian ministries such as crew and young life tell me story to story of people that they knew in those ministries uh, and it, it happens along that exact trajectory that you described a moment yep. ago where it, it begins with either social justice or uh, race relations, and then just keeps going down from there mm-hmm. um, to where it pretty much ends up with just a full deconstruction. Get them as, this
1: book. That's I mean, that's yeah. we wrote this book as a resource for for every pretty much every evangelical Christian in the U.S. And in the, I mean, yeah. and we we mentioned this. But we field inquiries from other continents from India, from Africa, Kenya, Ghana, South Africa, the UK, you know, Japan, because mm. in every culture, critical theory just latches on to whatever is the most socially salient uh, feature of, of division, whether it's, here it's race in the US. In the UK, it's often colonial status. In India, it's the caste system. In, apparently in Africa, it's it's tribe, but you have the oppressor tribes and oppressed tribes, but mm-hmm. it takes that that social division and it uses that as a as a as a foot in the door to introduce entire way of thinking. I, you know, these people in Kenya are like, this is this is coming from the U.S. We hate it. Take it back. Stop exporting <laughs> your poison to us. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I agree. But it's not like it's isolated to the U.S. It's not like it's a Republican Democrat issue, because it's like, you know, you go to the to India. They're like, what's a Democrat? They don't they don't know. But it's there yeah. also. So we really have to approach this as, as these are. Insidious, pernicious ideas—they are parasitic. They will infect various cultures and destroy them from the inside. So we have to stamp them out.
0: Yeah, yeah, and something that I really hope uh, a lot of pastors out there um, equip themselves on, because yeah, as a pastor myself, I've uh, I've seen um, I've seen what it can uh, do, and you know had to deal with it in our church, and uh, you know seen how it it always either ends in the person. Uh, abandoning the the woke positions and returning to you know uh, biblically faithful views, or mm-hmm. the person leaving their biblically faithful views. It's one or right. the other. No yeah. one ever just continues to hold on to one piece of the the woke position uh, and to maintain the rest of their biblical worldview. It's one mm-hmm. way or the other, and so uh, so yeah. I hope a lot of pastors grab this book too. Um, so how do you criticize what, what are your critiques of those those and i we can't go into the whole critique of all four of those main ideas that make up contemporary critical theory uh but if we just chose one you know perhaps l- let's do the number four the the social justice how do you guys uh critique that idea in contemporary critical theory and provide a better alternative um in the christian worldview?
1: So social justice, as defined by critical theorists, is all about dismantling the social binary, which is produced by these hegemonic discourses, these narratives about what's right and wrong, good or evil, what's natural, what's God-ordained. And they see all of those things as mechanisms for the ruling class to preserve their power, and they have to be undermined. And we just respond by saying, but wait a minute, as Christians, we have to affirm there is an objective right and wrong there are God there are actual God ordained norms that are good that we should not dismantle. So for example, the gender binary is God ordained. God created us male and female. It's good to affirm that. We cannot change our sex. It's, it's in our nature and our nature. And because of that, we should it would be actually unjust to dismantle the social the gender binary. Another example would be heterosexuality. God designed male and female to unite in marriage and to procreate. That's the nature of marriage. That's the nature of male and female. So it is not wrong or unjust to promote natural marriage. It is, in fact, a good and just thing for society to affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman in covenant. It's a reflection of Christ in the church. So there's two examples where you just... At, at the outset say you're looking at this whole issue wrongly because you've denied the fact that God actually does have norms and values that are not ours or mine or yours or they're not imposed on us by anyone but God. <laughs> and we have to, as Christians, or take another example more broadly, critical race theory believes that law is a mechanism for perpetuating white dominance. That's how it analyzes law. There are quotes we have in the book where critical race theorists say that critical race theory rejects the idea of some absolute transcendent standard of right and wrong. Law is just a human construct to perpetuate the privilege of the dominant group. Now, as a Christian, forget the content, we reject that. Of course, there are unjust laws that that run counter to God's law, the God's moral law. And yet, but there is a moral law, and our laws ought to be grounded in God's eternal moral law. And this is actually the position of Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. Uh, he was taking it the very traditional Christian approach to law, going back to Augustine and Aquinas. So the, the bottom line is there are just so many ways in which the assumptions of critical theory, their assumptions about law, about morality, about oppression, about justice, they just fly in the face of basic Christian thinking that you cannot reconcile the two. I mean how can you say that all laws are merely mechanisms for social power? There no, what about laws against murder? It's just this is nonsense. And yet you'll have people thinking they can square the circle. It's not it doesn't not going to work.
0: Mhm. Yeah, no what about social uh, no, sorry, social binary. What about the social mm-hmm. binary because uh, I do think we can see how uh, you know, there is this there is a biblical precedent for uh, the idea that they're Uh, that oppression happens, and uh, sometimes it happens from one group to another. Hmm. So how do you uh, evaluate and critique that idea in contemporary critical theory?
1: So first of all, we have to define oppression biblically. So if we define oppression in terms of cruelty and injustice, uh, then yes, yes, oppression exists that way. And oppression can be perpetrated by groups against groups, like the Egyptians and the Israelites. Egyptians, as a group, oppress the Israelites by throwing their children in in the Nile. That, that's clear, uh, enslaving them. That's oppression. Uh, so we're not denying that can happen. But what we are denying is, say, that the gender binary is oppressive, because you've redefined the word oppression to include any, any sense in which some dominant group imposes values. That's not oppression. Oppression involves tyranny and cruel and unjust treatment, defined biblically. Another problem, though, is that critical theory thinks of everything in terms of collectives and groups. So in theory, in principle, yes, you can have a group that oppresses another group that like egyptians and Israelites, but today we're talking about people being oppressed as a group they ignore the tremendous influence of your individual advantages on your day-to-day experiences and we give the example of oprah according to critical social theory oprah would be a member of two oppressed at least two oppressed groups she's black so she's oppressed because of her race and she's a woman so she's oppressed by the patriarchy but in her actual experienced day-to-day life, is Oprah oppressed, biblically speaking? And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, I think Oprah is a is has four billion dollars in net worth. You know, Oprah could buy and buy in all of the stuff that I own a, a, a thousand, ten thousand times over, right? So, there's no sense in which Oprah is a, experientially day-to-day oppressed, and yet they want to treat her as if she is oppressed and if she belongs to a oppressed class. Well, and our point is, no, it's not how oppression ought to be understood phenomenologically. And, and, co- and contrary wise, if you'd look at a, a, a poor, disabled, white, homeless guy, you know, you know, they would say, well, but he's privileged because of his whiteness and his masculinity. And we're saying, but he's homeless and he's poor and he's disabled. They would say, Yeah, but he's still privileged. And again, on their on their worldview, on their definition of privilege, that's the case, but we'd reject that. We'd say, But in in an what really matters is his absolute sense in which he's treated and experiences life. And in that sense, he is not privileged. He would never in a million years exchange, you know, your life for his, even though he has white privilege and male privilege. So our point is that there is a sense in which the, our individualism is real. And other advantages, things like growing up in a two-parent home, having a loving family, being part of God's kingdom, (laughs) these things are not treated at all by critical social theory, and yet they are, I would argue, much more relevant to your actual day-to-day experience of life. And one other thing that critical theory can do is it can and does teach people to see themselves as oppressed who are not actually oppressed— so teach – if you're you know a successful uh, a black woman who has a wonderful husband and family, but you're being t- – if you go to take a – you know get a PhD in education, you'll be assaulted on daily basis with this, this message that you are actually oppressed. And if you say, well, I don't feel oppressed, they'll say, that's because you have internalized racism and misogyny. You have to get woke and get a tr- critical consciousness to see that you're oppressed. And unfortunately, some of that works, and people begin to internalize this message that I am actually oppressed. I'm under assault. And they end up being miserable because who wants to feel like they're constantly being oppressed and everyone's out to get me and them and these systems that I can't control that are abusing. Me. But in reality, though, they're not. They're not actually being assaulted on a daily basis. So, again, it can ruin people psychologically to feel – and actually there's a we, – but we cite – the last thing I'll say is we cite a number of um, secular scholars. One of the scholars we cite is Jonathan Haidt and Greg Glukianoff. They talk about in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind – how college students, there's a mental health crisis among college students. And one of the reasons that they cite in their book, I think they're both atheists, they point out that if you have this framework, this, and they they call it an intersectional framework, that says that you are oppressed all the time by all these unseen forces that are invisible, that you can't control, of course you feel depressed all the time. Right? And you're ruining people's mental health because you're telling them constantly, you ought to feel oppressed. You ought to feel like you're a victim because you are. That's yeah. a terrible thing to do.
0: Oh, yeah. And you can see it. You can visibly see it happen to these students. You know, I, I spend a lot of my time at coffee shops. I have my home office, which is being filmed here. And then I, uh, I go to coffee shops. That's where I work. And Man, over the years, I have seen again and again and again these uh, young, brand new college students start working in the uh, coffee shop. Uh, usually, it, it you, you see this happening with females more often, but um, they they start out beautiful young woman, happy and smiling, friendly, and then over the course of one or two semesters, where you know where she's taking classes at our university gender studies yeah uh, i don't even think they're all gender studies majors but you can see this this change physically happen to them they start dressing differently they they get these uh haircuts and color their hair green or yellow or purple uh but then and then you can see becoming depressed and where they were once friendly and happy and um now they they, they look miserable and uh, they never smile. It's it, It's sad. It's sad to see. Mm-hmm. But as you explain these things, I think that a lot of people in the audience are thinking to themselves, okay, this is obviously um, completely diametrically opposed to the, the biblical worldview that I hold. Nevertheless, there are uh, different Christian leaders and thinkers who want to try to bring a biblical worldview and a critical approach uh, together to where... You know, we can maybe continue holding on to our biblical worldview, but use critical theory as a tool um, or even bring them together. I'm thinking of the example, uh, I think his name's Chris Watkins, who published Mm -hmm. the book Biblical Critical Theory. I haven't read the book, but I want to get your thoughts on those kind of projects. And if you have read that book, uh, maybe your thoughts on that book and and those types of attempts.
1: So, uh, Watkins' book, the title is terrible. It's not biblical critical theory. I read out half the book. It's very, very long, uh, and, it's, and you can disagree with it, but he, he has a whole section on why the Marxist oppressor-oppressed oppressed binary is wrong and unbiblical, right? So, mm-hmm. I I think, I think when he's alluded actually in page two he says, I could have called this book, like, now that you're—like, what do you do with what you know b- biblically, right? How do you live out the Bible? So it seems to me, I'm guessing the publisher was like, ooh, name it Biblical Critical Theory, it'll get a lot of press. <laughs> it's <Like, laughs> a terrible decision, but it, it really, re- I, halfway through, unless he springs some trap, it, it's just about like, how to understand things like, you know, what is, what is liberation? What is justice? What is, what is identity? What is family? From a biblical perspective, it's all he's doing. So I think the, mm-hmm. the title was just completely misleading. There yeah. are, though, other people, like there's a book by Romero and Liao um, called Christianity and Critical Race Theory, where they attempt to argue that critical race theory is actually helpful and deeply forming, and, and, you know, it's good for Christians, and we can take, you know, they don't agree with all of it, but they think we can take a lot of it, and um, and they, it, it dovetails well with biblical thinking. And uh, I, so there is an overt attempt to marry Christianity and at least aspects of critical race theory there. Um, and I think it's doomed to failure. I, I think that to the extent, now, we say in the book, we have a whole chapter on the positive insights that, that critical theorists provide. There are some true things that they say that we can affirm because they're grounded in general revelation. They're just features of God's reality. We can affirm that. An example is race is a social construct. Yes, it is. Critical race say that a lot, so do we. The Bible says it too. So so it's fine to say that and say, yeah, critical race theorists can, can affirm true things. And so we're not superstitious. But the larger project must be rejected. And, and the big problem is that Christians oftentimes, they'll say things like, well, we can eat the meat and spit out the bones. But they won't tell you what the bones are. They won't tell you what the meat is. You're left mm-hmm. to figure that out on your own. And our mm-hmm. point is, number one, that's not even a good way to think about it. The analogy we use is saying you're going to eat the meat and spit out the poison. Well, that's different. You can't really do that. <laughs> the meat's, the poison's in the meat. That's what makes it dangerous. Uh, And so we would argue that that would be a better analogy. And so we would say, yes, there are things that you can say are true because they're true independent of critical theory, critical race theory, critical theorists say them too. But we can't adopt this framework. And, And more than that, we provide, I think we have 770 footnotes plus, 770 plus footnotes. We cite critical theorists in their own words extensively, not just a phrase here and there, but entire block quotes, paragraphs. So you can hear them. For the, in their own words, what they believe. And when you do that, you quickly realize, I cannot embrace this. Mm. When they tell me what they believe and what is a core element of their discipline, a core tenet of their theories, that's false. I can't believe that. And so my question I always pose when people say, well, I can eat the meat and spit at the bones of critical race theory, say. I'll say, how many defining elements of CRT can you reject before you've rejected the whole thing? Because there are at least they're the many quote-unquote defining elements that are identified by critical race theorists that you must reject as a Christian. And would be like saying, well, I can well, I can accept Christianity. I'm just going to leave out a few defining elements. Like, you know, like the resurrection and the trinity. Well, that's not Christianity anymore. Yeah. So, in the same way, if you're going to – I can embrace parts of critical race theory, just not these parts. Well, if those parts are the defining elements of CRT, then you can't – You can't do that actually so that's our argument and and that's why we're so conscientious about footnoting and documenting our sources that's what they say let them speak for themselves and be fair in treating them but then i think you have to come to the conclusion this is not compatible it's not
0: yeah well i agree neil this has been a great conversation we could go on for hours talking about all this there is a lot to unpack a lot to uh to consider in our culture uh but you guys have done an excellent job in this book uh the book is called critical dilemma for those of you guys who are wanting to pick up a copy i will have the book linked in the show notes below so go down to the description and go to the show notes and you can uh, find a link to the book there so you can pick up a copy for yourself Neil, any last thoughts that you want to leave us with other than pointing people to go get the book?
1: Yeah, I just say, keep pick up the book, definitely. It, it, we've done a lot of work on this. We really wanted it to be a resource for the church. Uh, give it to non Christians. We had, uh, I think, 25 endorsers. Four of them were secular atheist thinkers uh, who endorsed the book merely because they thought it was a really good book. And we're hoping that people give it to their non-Christian friends just as a resource for them. and But it's full of the gospel. It's full of a Christian worldview. And so it can even be a way to uh, to have spiritual conversations with them. And to and we pray that God would use it to save people. I mean, there I think there are 440 Bible references, too, in the book and, and whole quotes from Ephesians and Genesis. And so, uh, yeah, pick up the book. But also pray. Pray for um, the church. Pray for your church. Pray for... Um, just that we would be able to resist and stand up against these ideas um, and that this is a spiritual battle it's not just a matter of flesh and blood or even bad ideas it's a matter of ideas that are going to lead people away from christianity and so we need to pray against that
0: absolutely i i wholeheartedly second everything you just said well neil thanks so much again for coming on the show today really enjoyed our time uh, i appreciate you and pat's work uh, your diligent hard work you've done in all this, uh, please uh, please keep it up and be encouraged that uh, it's bearing much fruit in spite of whatever pushback you guys get. So, thank you so much and appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us on Filter.
1: Thank you.